Um, thank you also to the Summer Foundation and to Rotary for hosting um, this evening's uh, event and also for all of you very much for coming and listening uh, tonight. What an honour it was to have been asked to deliver this third Memorial Alan Martin Lecture. As Tom has said, uh, it is uh, a lecture that's set up to pay tribute to Alan for uh, his work in establishing uh, Vibira um, and for bringing us all together in that multidisciplinary collegiate uh, atmosphere of sharing information and um, looking for uh, ways that we could work together to find um, uh, uh, ways of um, working with clients so that we could get better outcomes. And it's fantastic that the work of Vibira is now being continued um, through the Summer Foundation. Okay, I've been writing this uh, talk while I've been preparing myself to become a grandma for the first time. And the themes have been merging with one another. So 40 years in brain injury, as Tom said, just a few years there, Tom, um, sort of thinking about how I'm going to sort of um, apply myself in my new role. And it's been fascinating. Actually, a bit of a close call as to what was going to come first, the lecture or the baby. Um, I have jumped the gun and I am still a grandmother in waiting. So I'm sorry that title is a little bit misleading. Um, but uh, I would like, before we get on to the issue of uh, brain injury, to share with you just a very quick story from the kind of grandma in waiting side of the fence. So my son Will and daughter-in-law Vicky are expecting a daughter. And fearing the reactions and the judgments of um, everyone, they chose to withhold sharing the baby's names, or the ones they've potentially selected. But in a private moment with my son, I thought he should probably make an exception for his mother <laughs> and um, invited him to uh, let me know what names they were thinking of. So he said, okay, mum, but you have to promise when I tell you the names, you don't say anything, you don't show any reaction on your face, you just <laughs> don't do anything, okay? And I will then, if you can promise me that, I'll tell you the names. I thought, well, actually, I think I'd spend a fair bit of my time at work doing that. So I think I'm quite had a bit of practice. Yep, I can do that, Will. So he said, okay, and so I take a deep breath, set my face muscles, think right, don't talk, keep your mouth shut. You ready? Yep. Tulip. You wouldn't, Bron, fail. <laughs> you would not, you would not have been told the baby's name. I didn't move a muscle. I nailed it. And uh, Will said, "Good on you, Mum. You passed the test. Now I'll tell you the names." <laughs> so we're going to come back to Tulip a little bit later. So. I'm really going to be talking about um, acquired brain injury and behaviour change. But we're going to be coupling that with looking at participation. In particular, in the context of living in shared supported, uh, shared supported accommodation. 
So I'd like to start with Adam's story and take you through some aspects of a 12-month period of intervention, um, working with Adam and a team associated with Adam. So Adam um, was admitted to a Tipping Foundation shared supported accommodation setting after having been living in a, a residential aged care um, for many years. He was one of six residents uh, in a facility managed by Karina Griffiths. So just to start off, what I'd like you to do is to um, watch a, a video clip. We have Karina talking about a day in the life of Adam. Now, Karina is um, focusing in here on a day in the life 12 months after Adam was admitted to um, the accommodation setting. to Adam's room and he would start throwing them or he'd say a derogatory comment to somebody um, and they would respond like it was a personal attack on them and which would set Adam up for a bad day and set everybody else up for a bad day. Good day for Adam was he would get up first thing in the morning, um, attend to his personal care with the majority of help done by staff. He didn't actually participate much in his own personal care. He'd go down to breakfast and then ramble around the house for most of the day with not really positive interactions with staff. Due to he would be like verbally abusive first thing in the morning, um, he'd verbally abuse residents and staff, so the relationship with uh, everybody in the house was really strained, so nobody really wanted to interact with Adam. So most of the day he wouldn't really do much of anything at all. Okay, so how did it get to this? Well, like most relationships, it didn't start off like that. And there was a honeymoon period when he first moved into the house. But over the subsequent um, 18 months of his admission, the situation slowly, slowly spiralled downwards until we got to the point where um, Adam was displaying a range of challenging behaviours, um, lots of questions, swearing, derogatory comments to other residents, taking things and putting them in the bin, turning up the music during a rest time or at night, taking people's food out of the fridge, putting his own belongings in the bin, refusing medication and rejecting nutritious meals, which was a problem um, because he was diabetic and at, at this stage he was only eating jam sandwiches. So this is the frequency of these behaviours. So cast your eye down that um, list and you can see that this is an extraordinary level of um, behaviour and things had become very difficult um, obviously for Adam, um, the other residents and for staff. So what happens to participation? When we have these levels of challenging behaviour and by participation I'm referring to um, engagement in the activities of daily life. So the routine activities within the home and the community, engagement in meaningful life roles. Um, and um, all of those routines and activities and roles and relationships that make up a full life. When people um, display challenging behaviour, often what we see um, is that it, um, it flows into a lower level of participation. 
Um, often people are not able to um, uh, be taken into settings in the community because of their behaviour or people um, withdraw from them, avoid them and slowly, slowly that particip those participation levels erode. Of course, what happens as that happens is that you're just creating more and more antecedents for increasingly higher levels of challenging behaviour. And then of course when you try to address all of this, the challenging behaviour in itself then becomes a barrier to rebuilding participation. So you've got this sort of a bit of a vicious circle going on here. So in the presence of high levels of challenging behaviour, our life role, the life roles, relationships and activities just shrink into um, a very often a very small um, amount of participation. And one of my clients a number of years ago described that there is a black hole now where my life used to be. I remember Robin Tate at the Vera, you remember this Joan, a few, quite a few years ago, describing this type of outcome as life impoverished in the extreme. And that, that's always stayed with me, impoverished in the extreme. And I'm sure many of you will know your own Adam um, or come across your own Adams in your, um, in your work um, because for people who've had very severe brain injuries, look, the research is different figures, different um, research studies, but you know, around about 50% of people who've had this level of injury that Adam had will end up with a very impoverished level of life role participation. And that can often be tracked back to the presence of challenging behaviours. We could all offer our own thoughts on what the worst aspect of this sort of um, black hole would be. For me, I think it would probably be the loneliness. Um, and Jacinta spoke last year beautifully about, you know, that um, social communication, social relationships, and you know, really what a lot of what I have to say probably ties in very nicely to last year's presentation. I love this quote. Anyone read this book? If you haven't read it, I recommend it. I'll read it out because I'm not sure how well you can see that at the back. Loneliness is hallmarked by an intense desire to bring an experience to a close, something which cannot be achieved by sheer willpower or by simply getting out more, but only by developing intimate connections. This is far easier said than done, especially by people whose loneliness arises from a state of loss or exile or prejudice, or who have reason to fear or mistrust, as well as long for the society of others. The lonelier a person gets, the less adept they become at navigating social currents. Loneliness grows around them like mould or fur, fur, a prophylactic that inhibits contact no matter how badly contact is desired. Loneliness is accretive, extending and perpetuating itself. Once it becomes impacted, it's by no means easy to dislodge. But I think for someone living in shared supported accommodation, surrounded by staff, surrounded by other residents, how much worse is loneliness when it's coupled with social exclusion? And I think this was really the um, major factor in um, Adam's behaviour. 
And at the outset, I guess, Karina, um, who and, and I, obviously through working very closely together, felt that a lot of the behaviour, particularly things like the repetitive questioning, um, some of the verbally aggressive behaviours, were indicators that a lot of his underlying needs were not being met. And for instance, you know, he wasn't, wasn't attention-seeking behaviours, and I'm sort of going like that because we often hear that that this kind of thing can be labelled as attention-seeking. I don't, it wasn't attention-seeking. They were actually maladaptive, but paradoxically very effective um, attempts by one human being to engage in human contact with another person. So that's our brief picture of Adam. Now, normally in a presentation, I'd go on and on about Adam and all the things about Adam, but for today's presentation, I really want to sort of switch things around a bit and look at things from the point of view of the staff, the disability support workers who were staffing um, Adam's uh, residence. So, but before we go into the sort of um, specifics of Adam's situation, let's just again broaden the focus out a little bit and let's think about this workforce. What what is this workforce in shared supported accommodation? Um, and when, you, when we go through this, I, I did struggle to know whether to even say this, um, and I, I've chosen to because I really encourage you to think about this with a mindset of empathy rather than a mindset of criticism. Um, it's, I think the disability support workforce has the most difficult job of us all. Um, and you want to consider when you walk into a house and you see what's going on and you talk to the staff, there'll be a house manager or some other type of title like that. You want to ask the house manager, how many houses are they managing? It's very rare now for it to be just one. Often it's two, sometimes three, sometimes more. How many clients make up that whole cohort? A manager could be have 8, 12, 20 very severe people being responsible for across a number of houses. There'll be a large staffing group of disability support workers. Every resident will have their own team. So there'll be you know, a number of OTs, there'll be speeches, there'll be physios, neuropsychs, lots of different ones coming into the house all with their own, along with the family, all with their own sort of expectations and hopes and um, guidelines about what staff will do to support that person. And then ask yourself also how much supervision and support the house manager gets in their role. The disability support workforce, um, again, think about the employment status, often casual, sometimes agency, um, very high turnover, often not long employment, not really a career path, so um, people might transit through this sort of field, often lower levels of formal education and English language skills, probably not a background in brain injury, possibly not a lot in training, support and supervision, and everyone can end up with different kind of understanding of what the actual role is. So it's quite challenging really, um, that this that this is um, happening. There's clearly a huge variation and we, I'm sure we have all worked with some sensational managers, who, many of whom are here tonight, and carers 
um, but then there's the other end of the spectrum as well. And I think, you know, given the sort of Productivity Commission report that came out last week or last month, with the NDIS flagging, you know, we have got major workforce issues here. Um, not just in the fact that there really isn't a sort of a, a career-based um, uh, workforce, um, but numbers are going to be very, very difficult to staff all these hours that are being um, uh, approved in the NDIS plans that seem to be coming through. So as I said, I think it's really important for us to bring an understanding and a level of empathy into this um, when we come and um, work in, in our house. So that's the workforce, come back to Adam. I mean, how would you cope with this every day? That level, the level of behaviour, all day, every day you come to work and faced with this level of behaviour. Obviously, it's a workplace and a home, uh, which is tricky anyway. Um, and the th we really, I think, I, I think maybe, I know there's many people in the room would agree to me with me, we actually give the hardest job to the people who are probably um, least equipped to deal with it. And it is actually the most important job because as being a therapist, like my guidelines are nothing um, unless um, people who are working with the client day after day, uh, hour after hour, are you know, able to um, contribute to and sort of end up with a set of guidelines that are actually able to implement. So let's have a look at what might be going on from the disability support workers' perspective. Well, for all of us, whatever we do and clients, etc., the job of the brain, pretty much, to make it quite simple, is to help us to think, to feel and to behave, okay? So we can go through each of these three domains and look at what might be happening from the carer's perspective. So, feelings. So as human beings, we do all experience emotional reactions to the behaviour of others. That's just a fairly obvious statement. The stronger the negative feelings that we experience in relation to others' behaviour, the more challenging we're going to um, see that behaviour to be. So when we got together with Adam's carers and asked them and talked to them about how they were feeling, this is the kind of thing that came out. Really distressed, angry, frustrated, um, they really gave off very strong indicators that they didn't like Adam. Um, they were worn down, stressed, felt disempowered and burnt out. Now, often advice um, that we might give in this sort of situation often starts with feelings. So we give, give, might come and give advice about how the carer should feel in this situation. And you've probably all heard and probably, like me, in the past, given the advice, don't take the behaviour personally. It seems like quite a, potentially on the face value, quite useful advice, but actually I think the more I've thought of it over the years, I realised it's extremely unhelpful. Um, a number of reasons for that. I think for a therapist to walk in to this sort of situation and as say as a starting point that carers should just switch those feelings off is um, not 
very helpful. And one intend, unintended outcome of that, of course, is to be to, you're really saying to them, look, Adam can keep on behaving as he likes, but all that needs to change here is that you need to stop feeling so upset about it. So it kind of leads to this um, sort of culture of, sort of tolerating the behaviour um, rather than feeling like you need to do anything about it. But the other thing is, I think the carers in this situation had been given that advice in the past, and um, I think it really, um, it's really unfair to the carers. It's sort of not acknowledging the real, these are real feelings. And if we were doing this job, if we were exposed to this, we would feel the same. Um, and if you come in and, and we would actually feel entitled to feel like that too, I think. And if someone tells us to stop feeling like that, we are going to hold on to those feelings and we're going to think that person doesn't really understand our situation. And um, they'll feel more blamed, misunderstood and probably switch off from whatever you say next. And clearly the situation though will never change for Adam while workers hang on to this kind of feelings because I think it kind of um, uh, will come across to him as dislike. No matter how severely the client is injured, they will process the body language that is given over, the, the facial expressions, the tone of voice, um, even if maybe the words are not always understood. Um, the body language will communicate those feelings of dislike. And it, that becomes a complete and utter barrier to developing a working relationship. So you never get off square one. So we were, we kind of knew that while carers were um, feeling like this, we weren't going to shift the situation, but you know, you can't just tell people to stop feeling like that. So how do you reduce some of these strong feelings? Well, another tack we can take is to look at the thoughts. So how, how we think about a situation and the mental judgments we make or the attributions influence the way we feel. And of course that works uh, vice versa as well. The Adams um, support workers had formed unhelpful attributions. So, and I'm gonna come back to that in a bit more detail um, in a minute. So they kind of, over the 18 months, gradually kind of come to the view that he's not a nice person, he needs to stop treating us like this, and he's um, just attention seeking. So we know that these attributions are feeding um, some of these strong feelings. The third sort of perspective is that we could look at it the um, carers from a behaviour point of view. So what are the behaviours that are being displayed by the carers? Because of course the way we behave is going to then be, is going to be influenced by our attributions and our feelings. Now this was powered by the strong and negative feelings I've described and a belief that he was in control of his behaviour. The disability support workers and everyone was very upfront about this, um, about how they were attempting to manage this was through minimising or avoiding interactions and time spent with him, so hence this is this sort of part of the erosion of the participation, made negative comments about him and to him and replied to his repeated questions in a somewhat exasperated and sharp manner. So, where do we start? What, what are we going to do? Okay, so I've already said the feelings advice isn't a good starting point. So come back to thoughts, because 
examine the way we're thinking about a situation can help us to shift and to shift the way we feel about it. We'll go through this in some detail and I apologise to those of you who have heard me say this before but I have to tell you it is probably one of the most helpful things that I think I've learnt in the last 40 years. So um, anyway, we'll go through it. So attributions. So they're to do with the judgments that we make. Now, as human beings, we're constantly making judgments and assumptions about other people from all sorts of things. You've probably done it here tonight um, with somebody in the room. Could, be, could have been good or maybe not, but <laughs> we all do it. We do it all the time. We do it by the way people dress, their mannerisms, the way they greet us, if they smile, if they don't, what they say. We even judge them around the name they call their baby. <laughs> um, we make these assumptions very quickly. We do it on the tram, in the shops, um, while we're waiting in a supermarket queue, we do it with our friends, our colleagues and of course our clients and our clients who display behaviours of concern, we um, certainly um, make attributions and judgments. And you'll all know, because we've all been in this situation ourselves, once you've formed a judgement about someone, it's actually really hard to shift. And we're all prone to that faulty thinking where you sort of filter evidence around you to confirm the opinion you've already made. So it tends to sort of strengthen our view. So we can um, look at a very useful framework for sort of unpacking this whole thing of attributions um, and start to look at bringing the brain injury back into the picture, which had been sort of forgotten about on the, on the way, um, and to separate the behaviour from the person. So let's take this example, because this is a real life example, what was happening with Adam. So he needed two people from a physical perspective to assist him in his personal care in the morning. So the two workers would come in, let, let him know that it's time for a shower. He'd tell them to fuck off. They then would just go about their duties. And then he would start with the question, typically who's coming today? They would answer the question, he'd ask it again, they'd answer it, you know, and this would go on maybe two or three times and then, and then it would all sort of switch. They'd start to feel quite exasperated that they'd already told him the answer, he should know that, um, and instruct him, stop answering that asking that question I've already told you, and then he would give them a, a little bit of a burst of verbal abuse. And that was the morning and it kind of rolled on like that. So, how are we going to think about this situation? Now, you can see I've used the terms helpful and unhelpful. We steer away from right and wrong, okay? Because we're not getting an argument about who's right or not, or wrong. I've done that before, and that's why now I call it helpful and unhelpful. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be like, well, you can't say he's not a nice person, but he isn't a nice person. <laughs> like, well, <laughs> let's not argue about that. It's not helpful to say it. Um, because this internal one is really about picking something about, it's very about the person themselves that they're feeling is causing or triggering this behaviour. It's more helpful to look at something outside the person themselves and think, perhaps, um, and we might not know the exact answer here, but we can generate a hypothesis here that well, perhaps he's disoriented first thing in the morning when he's rushed, not knowing what's happening probably makes him a bit anxious. So maybe that's got something to do with his behaviour. 
we could think the behaviour is permanent or, un or temporary. So it can't be changed or it's open to some sort of intervention. So permanent would be he behaves like this towards us every morning. He does it with everyone. Temporary is he doesn't always do this actually. You know, there are a couple of carers who don't get this level of um, uh, verbal abuse. Um, and in fact, when he first moved in, he didn't do this. So we're starting to look at exceptions and you think, well, what might have been different about when he first moved in? Fortunately, that particular one then led to thinking, well, he didn't do it when he first moved in, so it can't be due to the brain injury. It means he's in control of the behaviour. And that, that um, can be quite, um, obviously that requires, takes a little bit of explaining of why it can still be the, um, down to the brain injury, but you get this variation in the way he behaves. So um, the other controllable one is he needs to stop treating us like this. It's up to him to be the first to change. And carers were very clear about that in meetings. They felt that I just needed to go in there and tell him that he couldn't behave like that, that he had to stop treating the carers in that way. And that was kind of thought that that would help him to change. Um, it, I, I didn't have any confidence in that strategy, but um, <laughs> anyway, um, I don't actually have a magic wand. <laughs> um, uncontrollable is to say, well, perhaps his impulse control um, is poor and when he's disoriented and anxious and he's perhaps not got full control over the way he's responding and behaving. And the last one is unique where um, an unhelpful um, way of looking at it is, and this came through in meetings, none of the other residents talk to us like that. Uh, he's the only one who treats us like this. Whereas a helpful way is saying, well, behaviour change is very common after brain injury. Um, and he's also actually appears to be quite anxious, which is common uh, when people are amnesic. And we were starting to get some sense that he probably was amnesic by this stage. So if you can think, if you think along the unhelpful lines, he's not a nice person, he could stop if he wanted to, he's in control, he's just tension seeking, nobody else does this to us, it's never going to change. Then you're going to really, behaviour really going to get to you and you will feel, as the carers did, powerless, stressed and very pessimistic. On the other hand, if you can think, well, Adam's had a brain injury, a very severe brain injury, it's very common, impacts on behaviour, he actually um, is amnesic, he's got a significant anxiety disorder as well, um, he wakes up pretty disoriented um, and he just kind of wants to know what's going on in the day. Um, you know, he didn't behave like this when he first came and we can look at what the difference might be there. So we can feel hopeful that perhaps we can reverse some of these changes that have happened over the last 18 months. If you can think like that, then you'd start to feel empowered, enjoying a challenge and quite optimistic. Well, um, so that's the sort of pathway we want. But in fact, oh no, sorry, before I go on and tell you what happened, just let me elaborate on some of the strategies that really work very well for helping people shift their attributions. One is to bring the back brain injury back into the picture. Because when the brain injury's been sort of 15 years ago, it's kind of like not 
remembered as being the key factor in the way the person's behaving. Explaining about behaviour change and brain injury and memory and that sort of thing can help um, people to understand the situation um, in such a way to avoid judging the person. Empathy is fantastic if we can see something from another person's point of view. It offers insights, particularly to the antecedents. You know, what would it be like to wake up here every morning and not know what's going on? Not know who you are when you walk in the door? Um, it would, we would feel anxious. We can identify exceptions. So there are a different set of antecedents that create a different um, climate where we can get more pro-social behaviours. With pro-social behaviours being those um, social behaviours that we want to promote that, um, that facilitate effective social relationships. We can also identify strengths. So let's think about the things that we um, like about Adam, the skills, the um, abilities that he shows, his values, his interests, etc. But we didn't get very far there. Um, and I have to tell you, we're probably, and Karina might correct me here, but I reckon we're about four months into our 12-month intervention here. She's not nodding about that, something like that. Okay, we're a fair way in. So this is 12 months and we've gone a fair way. We've now, by this stage, learnt a lot about Adam, but we haven't had much change in terms of what's happening on the ground. And I think it was particularly hard to change because this, this view was very much shared by the carer group. Um, you know, there were exceptions, but um, it, it, there was a general feeling that, um, uh, that you know, carers would sort of agree with each other in, in their formulations. So where you might you go from here? Well, remember Tulip? <laughs> I was reminded of our intervention with Adam when Will asked me to behave in a very prescribed way when he shared the baby names. So before he spoke, he prepared me with a plan to keep an expressionless face, say nothing, don't tell him what I thought, etc. So he scripted the situation to get the outcome that he wanted. Um, so that's actually what we did with Adam and it worked really well. So the, the tulip strategy, I'm going to be calling it from now on. So we wrote a script um, as if the morning routine was a play. So we had three actors. Adam was the main character. Uh, now, we let him ad-lib his lines. He'd had a lot of practice <laughs> over the last 18 months, so we felt pretty sure he'd play his part to perfection. The carers', um, the carers uh, lines and actions were all scripted. So we've got a carer group here who were still feeling like I've described, still had those attributions about Adam, but we said, OK, you don't just keep them as they are and just do what we're asking you to do in this morning routine. So this was their lines. I'm sorry, it's a bit hard to read at the back and you don't really need to read the whole thing. Um, but the um, first thing was to role model an appropriate greeting. So, um, and rather than the two carers coming in at once, which is probably a bit intimidating if you think about it. If again, you lie in that bed in your mind and you think about it, it's a bit intimidating. So we've got one to come in first, 
and um, closely followed by the second who would then say, oh, good morning, Jacinta, how are you? And Jacinta would say, oh, good morning, Sue. Well, thank you, how are you? And then, oh, hello, Adam, how are you? And this sort of thing, um, keeping it simple, just a greeting, smiling, using names, a greeting, a really nice greeting. And then giving him information about the day, telling him what they're going to do to start with. We're here to help you get, to help you get up and go have a shower. But before we do, would you like us to run through your day with you? And then, you know, depending on what he said, you know, today is um, Thursday, etc. You know, today you've got so-and-so coming at this time. Would you like me to write that on your whiteboard for you now or would you like me to do that after you shower? So giving him a choice there. And that's it. Like that, it seems, you know, I don't know, we're probably five months now <laughs> and this is what we've come up with. Um, and I, it doesn't seem a lot, but it's a starting point. And I think that's often the hard thing to find in this overwhelming situation, where do you start? And you don't always get it right to start with. So what happened? Well, like a lot of things, when carers or therapists or families change the way they're, because uh, there's a pattern of interaction that's been set up. When one party changes their side of it, it's a little bit strange for the other person. And for someone with challenging behavior, often you get an escalation because you've kind of got to get, this behavior was meeting a need. That need wasn't kind of being met with this greeting or not right at the start. Um, so the behavior initially escalated and Karina did an amazing job in just keeping everybody on track because often people give up at that point. And then you've almost just all reset a higher level of challenging behavior. So it's actually counterproductive. If once you start this, you've sort of got to give it a good go. Um, what happened after we got through the escalation bit was that then his behavior did start to reduce. And he sort of discovered through just his experience that his underlying needs for social interaction and for feeling oriented about his day were better met when he displayed pro-social behaviours. And because then he changed, the disability support workers started to see now that if they changed their behaviour, then Adam would change. So they got that link. And they also saw a different positive side to him because he was actually giving them a lovely greeting. And then there'd be a little bit of conversation and it kind of went from there. Um, okay. So I'm sort of skipping through big bits of it, but once we started to see that change, we came back to the attributions. And now this stuff started to get a lot of traction because we'd sort of had a bit of a breakthrough. So meetings changed from being quite strained. Um, everyone was very quiet. Um, it was a bit challenging um, at times um, in, 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 um, in the meetings um, because, you know, I guess there was a real pessimism and a sense that this is just not going to work. Um, there's nothing we can do, that sort of thing. But once the shift in Adam's behaviour started to happen, the shift in the carer's thinking started to happen. So it was great. 
meetings. So the brain behaviour link, for instance, and I've just taken direct quotes here from my notes from meetings. Um, the carers said one carer, it was an example of something, and the carer said, do you think he could have forgotten what you told him? I'm sitting here thinking, yes, it's fantastic. <laughs> it's like, yeah, perhaps he forgot. So something could be written on the whiteboard. Well, that's a good idea. Let's do that. <laughs> Empathy. Someone said, do you think he could be really annoyed and, and anxious that um, the community access carer is always late? He's pacing up and down the corridor. Do you think he hates being kept waiting? I know I hate. I hate it when people will keep me waiting. It's like, yes, that's how Adam is probably <laughs> feeling. Put yourself in his shoes. He's probably feeling like that. And it does seem so simple now, but it's incredible how stuck you can get in your, in your thinking when you're sort of exposed to this very challenging situation. A really good one was, um, with the exceptions, was um, uh, when one of the carers in one of the meetings said, guess what, I got him to eat quiche the other night. And then the other carer goes, oh, wow, how did you do that? What did you do to get him to eat quiche? Fantastic, so she went through. I, I did this, I did that, I got him to help me make it, help him choose the recipe, what we put in it. Oh, great, so if we involve him in um, food and cooking, perhaps we can get him to eat a wider range of food. And then there's strengths. There's, again, it's great. Um, one of the carers said, the other day I said to him, look, rather than going back to your room, Adam, after breakfast, why don't you help me stack the dishwasher? And the carer said, and he did. And he did a fabulous job. Um, he is such a great help. I actually, and he, he went and he helped me with the washing the other day too. So it turned out that he, you know, the, 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 the brain injury was coming into the thinking putting themselves in Adam's situation, can see that a lot of what's going on would be triggering quite um, strong feelings, that there are exceptions. There's different ways we can do this, so we don't have to get this behaviour, but we need to change what we're doing in order to facilitate that. And actually, he is a really lovely guy and he has got so many strengths and he's an extraordinary help around the house. So, unstuck, brilliant. So that, and I, again, I'm not sure where we were in our 12 month mark, but once this happened, it was like it just then rolled on from there. So the first probably five months were pretty hard work, but after that, there was a roll on effect. And talking to Karina the other day, it seems that things have continued to roll on and the carers do now feel much more empowered to be able to feel like they can bring an understanding of this situation uh, into into um, into it and um, be able to um, problem solve, um, which was really what was going on in the meeting, sharing, problem solving, um, how to manage all the various things that were happening. So over, uh, um, you know, probably 10 months, we kind of developed our positive behaviour support plan. So what about participation? It really does need to be a parallel intervention because there's no point just dealing with the behaviour. A lot of the antecedents to the behaviour come from that black hole. Um, so you have to build people's relationships, roles, daily activities. And the approach we use here is the community approach, approach to participation model that you would have heard um, Di Winkler, Libby Calloway and I talk about in the past 
which is a model where we specifically focus on role participation. So we're taking role participation as our end outcome to build roles, you know, home maintainer, friend, um, gym participant, hobbyist, uh, family member, whatever the key roles are, looking at the skills that underpin that role participation. So it's very hard to effectively participate in a role if you don't bring the skills to it that are required. Talked about the behaviour and coping skills, but we want to extend it out to independent living, social communication skills and then embed them within all the various activities and interests um, and into a daily and weekly routine that covers all the activities that Adam has to do or needs to do in his day and week, such as have a shower, whereas all the, and all the ones that he likes to do, um, like go to the gym and help with the laundry. And then structure the supports, the paid and the natural supports, and of course embed then the cognitive aids and strategies, particularly for um, Adam with his memory difficulty. Okay, it certainly takes a team. And what I thought I'd talk to you here is just sort of, as we went on, um, you know, we really built a really lovely team. Um, and certainly one of the principles of the CAP is around teamwork and all getting on the same page is really critical to success. So there was a really strong working relationship um, between neuropsychology and house manager. Um, we also expanded out and had lots of meetings with the family, community access workers. We engaged an allied health assistant, therapy assistant early on in the, pro in the process and she went to the house most weeks for two or three hours. Her brief was to build a working relationship with Adam. This was going on while the carers were feeling, we just sort of needed another side. Um, there were exceptions and certainly Karina was a major exception in being able to see what the strengths were. Um, but the work of Alice also helped us to explore interests and roles and mapping his cognitive, behavioural and communication strengths and weaknesses. She was there on the ground in the house as well and got regular feedback as to what was happening. She'd come back to the office, have weekly supervision. We'd talk about the next thing that she would do the next week and out she'd go and trial some different strategies and activities with him. And that, that went on um, through most of the 12 months. The critical thing was very um, frequent staff meetings um, with a combination of education, joint problem solving and planning um, and you know particularly plans for activity trials. Um, I thought I'd just let you know because again often that's a bit unrealistic in terms of how long and what it takes to get this sort of level of change. Um, we um, uh, we had um, I said it was about 12 month intervention. I I've went back and looked at the figures the neuropsych and the allied health input cost about $15,000 over that 12 month period. I don't know what tipping spent, it would have been a lot, um, because there were very regular staff meetings and very um, a lot of Karina's time. I mean, if they may have spent in the same amount and we might be looking at an intervention that might have cost say $30,000. That's extremely rough, but I'm telling you that because it's important to know that this 
this is, it can be costly and it can take a fair amount of time to get a change. But in the end, we had a really nice plan. Um, flex, uh, structured but flexible and responsive um, and really built by the staff. Once that sort of movement happened, the staff have been really integral in being able to develop and to continue and build on that plan. So this is what's happened. You know, there's still areas perhaps, you know, for, for room for rebuilding, like all of us, if we had to do this on ourselves. I'm sure I've got a black hole ring around there, which well, won't, I won't soon, but um, <laughs> I have at the moment. And I've been actually probably going like that to make a black hole so I can pop a baby in it. Uh, <laughs> it sounded stupid, sorry. Um, okay, so let's get back to the topic. Um, and let's hear um, Karina talking about Adam. Um, so we're now 12 months um, post. This is the sort of end of our intervention. It's a good day for Adam now. He's way lot better than it used to be. There's not a whole lot of verbal abuse. It still doesn't happen from time to time. Um, it's usually when Adam doesn't know what he's doing for the day. If something's changed and we haven't been able to set him up for that. Um, but he gets up in the morning, tends to his personal care. We have one person who tends to Adam now and it starts off really positively with that greeting. And he goes into the bathroom, he tends to the majority of his own personal care now. So the staff are only there just to help him just what he can't do. But I'd say 95% of his personal care he does himself. And he'll come down to the kitchen and he prepares his own breakfast now, which he wasn't doing before. And we've actually got a calendar up for him to tell him what days he's wanting to cook, like his rice pudding, because he cooks his own rice pudding now, and what days he's having something different for dinner, because probably worth mentioning that when Adam first came to us, he was only eating jam sandwiches, and that was all he was eating. But through you know, developing his own self-care, which Adam calls me care, he's actually eating a, a wide variety of foods now, such as like he makes his own pizza for dinner, he's uh, eating yogurt, fruit, rice pudding, so he's trying a whole heap of new foods and when he used to go out, he would only eat KFC, but now he actually makes his own lunch and packs it and takes it with him. So he's a whole lot more involved in his own care, which Adam's really flourished in doing that. So, and that was developed at a team meeting. All the team got together and you know, tried to develop how we could actually help Adam improve his meals and improve his own personal care and improve everything in the house for him, being in control of his life. So Adam used to sort of like be on the outskirts of everything we did. Um, Helen verbal abuse at everybody, but now he's actually involved in everything that we do. So he follows the tea towels, hangs out the washing, uh, unloads the dishwasher, loads the dishwasher, cleans up after other residents when they just leave their plates on the table, he'll go and clean up for them. Um, he's also, we've also implemented some day activities for him to get out of the house and be involved in the community more. Um, he goes out to shopping centres, he goes to the gym twice a week at the moment. So he's been a whole lot more involved in everything in his own life, so he's a whole lot happier in everything he does. And we look now at the, um, the level of challenging behaviour, which has dropped considerably. Importantly, as Karina said, you know, it hasn't gone. We're never, the aim isn't, and we're never going to eliminate it, and the potential will always sit there 
for um, escalation in the in the present, in the sorry, in the future. Um, but I guess what we want to do is to continue this sort of more forward um, movement, um, continue to develop his skills, um, expand his interests, um, his roles, his relationships. So there's this sort of real um, momentum for ongoing future uh, improvement. I just want to share with you my best moments. Um, at the first staff meeting, um, I said, or not the first probably, but you know, early staff member meeting, I said to the staff, you know, who needs to change first, you or Adam? And they're like, Adam, he just needs to stop treating us like this. I'm like, okay. At the last staff meeting, we said, tell me who changed first? Did you change first or did Adam change first? And they, in unison, said, we did. We had to change in order for Adam to change. I just thought that is fantastic, gold. And the other second best moment, um, equal best moment, was um, at the beginning when we went around the group and I said, can you tell me one thing you like about Adam, a strength, um, an interest, some a common, something. There was very little, in fact there, probably Karina was the only one who could think of an answer to that question. Um, and then at the end of it, we went around again, we went around the group and we said, okay, can you tell us one thing that you like about Adam and that you enjoy about Adam or some strength with Adam? And I don't know, I reckon we went around the room three or four times and everybody, we just had to say, okay, thank you, that's enough now. <laughs> um, but, you know, he's just become an absolute, um, you know, star. And of course the staff just feels so, proud of what they've achieved and understandably it was fantastic um, the the effort and I would really very much like to acknowledge Karina Griffiths who's um, with us tonight and the staff of Adam Shed supported accommodation um, for you know engaging in the 12 months and, and going through all of that and the Tipping Foundation uh, especially Jane Emery who somehow I don't know managed to find the funding for all of this and I think it was really important. We had the 100% support of the organisation on this because we could have could have all been given up after a month or two or even three because we really probably didn't get much of a shift for a while. Um, Adam's father as well would like to thank because I mean he was a terrific um, made a terrific contribution in our team. And you know what he was able to tell us about Adam before and the things that he liked about Adam and Adam's strengths. Um, you know, they were shadow, overshadowed at the time, at the beginning. We couldn't really see that. He wasn't displaying it. But to know they were sitting under there was great. And it gave us great hope that we would be able to help those things to emerge. Um, and of course, the Allied Health Assistant, who played a terrific role um, uh, in this um, program as well. So, reflections. Yeah while I've been knitting a baby blanket, <laughs> thinking about, well, how do I um, finish off? Um, and I just think a great way to finish is to um, come back to Barry Willer, who many of you know um, was the author of the Whatever It Takes approach um, many years ago, but those principles continue to um, influence our practice. 
Barry Willer, I was lucky enough about 25 years ago to hear him talk and I remember him saying, it was one of those moments, you know, when people talk and you just think, I'm going to remember that. He said, every interaction of every day is an opportunity. I actually can't remember what he said next, um, <laughs> but that doesn't matter because you can, I found over the years, you can actually add your own tagline. Add whatever you like onto that. And for this talk um, in SSA to shape pro-social behaviours, to build skills and participation in the routines of daily life. That, um, you know, I guess um, they're very, very, very small steps that you take every day. But you think about it, you know, a thousand small steps, you can actually get a fair way. And that's sort of what it's about. It's about trying to create a climate where every interaction shapes the individual towards the sort of pro-social, you know, full participation that we're kind of aiming for. And we know our clients are capable of change and that we can help people to rebuild participation and social behaviours, but it's actually up to us to create the right circumstances for that change to occur. Um, it takes a team, absolutely. And none of us can do this on our own. None of us. Doesn't matter how uh, anything we are. I mean, it just can't be by one person. Um, and we kind of almost come back to where we started with talking about Vibira and the values that were promoted through Vibira. Um, that kind of put, let's put the client at the centre of all of this. And let's gather ourselves around, work as a team, create good working relationships with each other, which means also withholding judgments about the others that are in the team, trying to think helpfully about our teammates, um, about families, as well as about clients and their behaviour. Um, and if we do that um, and come together on the team with the client and um, their um, outcomes as our focus, uh, we can certainly build a better future for the clients that we work with. So um, thank you very much for listening to me. Um, I do have a baby blanket to finish, so <laughs> I... Uh... Oh.